Good to see you this morning. Hope that the extra hour helped you in some way or another. Um, I feel like you all still managed to double in attendance from like the time that we start to the time I get up here, whether you have an extra hour or not. So congratulations on sticking to your guns on that and coming when you always come. I'm proud of you for knowing who you are. To the Tennessee fans, I know I've addressed it for a few weeks, and so we'll just, sorry about yesterday. Um, I was pulling for you. I went to like a house of Tennessee fans and was hoping there'd be a way, but I think you still got, a in, got, you got the inside track on getting into the playoffs, so we'll, we'll just hang our hat on that for now. Um, and we won't talk about it anymore. That's all. Alabama lost. That, right, that softens the blow for some of you, right? Okay. Enough of that. Um, thank you for your generosity last week. Um, in addition to your regular giving, you gave about $3,000 to our benevolence fund that we're going to be able to use to help some families in the church that are in need right now. And so I just want to let you know where that was and, and say thank you for that. Um, we really do appreciate it. We did not get any word on insurance stuff, so <laughs> just <laughs> you can keep praying or you can just say, I'm just going to wait till something happens. Uh, maybe it'll be this week, but uh, I told you about that, so I wanted to update you again. We haven't heard anything yet. Um, and then at the end of the service today, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together as part of worship, and so our kids will be coming in to do that with us. And I just always like to tell you that up front. I'm sure you know when you see the chairs, but that way I, I think it helps us just get our hearts and minds focused in that direction as we're studying uh, the Bible together. We're going to jump right in this week because last week I made it basically through the introduction and it was time to be done. We're still in Ephesians 5, uh, 17 through 6, 9. And I know we've taken like different chunks the past few weeks. But this is our third week here. And so since we've been in it for three weeks, you know, I feel like this is, you can call this part three or that was the intro. So I'm just going to dive right in today and kind of pick up where we were last week. And then I know there's like a small, small chance this will actually happen, but if I get finished early enough, then we'll open it up, and you can add some thoughts, too. If, if I don't do that, which you know how bad I am about that, if I don't do that, we'll roll that into next week. Um, so I'm going to read 517 through 69 here in just a minute. I'm going to briefly recap what we covered last week. Uh, if you weren't here for some reason, or I say some things and don't spend much time on them today, you're more than welcome to go back either on the website or on, on YouTube where we've got the recording of the live stream and listen to last week to kind of get the expanded version of that. But I'm going to pray for us. And I ask that you would pray with me the exact same thing that we just sang. I hope you sang it as a prayer, uh, that God would speak to us by his spirit from his word, that this wouldn't be my words, that you don't need my words, I don't need my words. We need him to speak and for the spirit to be the master teacher right now so that there's spiritual power and spiritual work that's done that actually reaches our hearts and he continues to change us as Christ lives in us. And so we're going to pray, asking him to do that, also trusting that he promises to do that for his people when we gather in his name and when we ask that he hears us because of Jesus. So we're going to ask for that. I'm going to read this section. Um, and we're still going to focus on what's this teach us about God as the foundation for these truths that are guiding what our relationships should look like. If our relationship with God and Him living in us by His Spirit is the defining relationship of our whole life, how does that affect all of our other relationships? That's really the, the thrust of this section of Ephesians. 
Like Paul has spent so much time saying, here's who God is, here's what God has done for you in the gospel and in Jesus, and, and here's what it means when God loves you this way in the gospel and accepts you as part of his family and part of his people and part of his church, and now that his spirit lives in you and he's the, hopefully the controlling influence in your life, what does it look like when you start to live out what he's living in you? So that's where we're headed. Let's pray and let's read this and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this time right now. Please teach us by your spirit, from your word, as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and open us up to the truth of your word. Father, I pray that during this time that your spirit would be working in our hearts on a level that impacts who we are. That you would be changing us and shaping us into who you've already called us to be when you accepted us in Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that, that this time would bring conviction and humility and honesty about who we are apart from Jesus, what our hearts look like if we're just left to ourselves, what naturally would come out of us. And then I pray that this time would bring hope and encouragement and faith about who you are making us in Jesus as he lives in us. And I pray that we would be driven to confess and to repent the, the things that can be hidden deep in our hearts that aren't like you, and that when we bring them out into the light, Father, that you would deal with them and you would crucify those things and you would replace them with your love and your grace and your life in us, that you would be our life. And so, Father, I pray that 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 type of spiritual work will be happening right now, and you're the only one who can do it. And so we ask you to do it. Please do it. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, Ephesians 5, picking up in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would, obe- as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. All right. Jumping back in here at verse 17, just really quickly, this is kind of where we were last week. One of the ways, one of the truths about God that I try to pull out right here as a summary starting place for us is that in these verses, God graciously gives us some really direct, explicit instruction about what his will is for our lives. That when we ask that really huge question that feels really mysterious sometimes, what is the will of God? that understand what the will of God is, be filled with the Spirit. Here's God's will for you, that you'll be filled with His Spirit. That, that the Spirit would fill you in such a way that the contrast Paul draws right here is that the way that wine would control a drunken person, like if you were to get drunk on alcohol, the way that alcohol controls your behavior and your thoughts, instead of that being a controlling influence in your life, the goal is that the Spirit would control you in that way. That you would be so filled with the Spirit that the Spirit is controlling your thoughts and your heart and your actions and your attitude. That this is God's will for you. That the controlling, God's will for you is that the controlling influence in your life will be his spirit and not anything else. <laughs> and one of the things that I've kind of emphasized here is how this fits with the way that we're constantly trying to remind ourselves to study the Bible. That if we come and ask, what's this teach about God? And we see in these verses that God is saying, hey, my will for you is that you will be filled with my spirit in such a way that my spirit's the controlling influence in your life. Then it expands these two verses to the point where we would say, nothing else in your entire life should control you the way the spirit does. And that certainly includes wine or alcohol here in these verses. That would be one of the things. But you can, you can expand it to every kind of illegal drug you can think of. This isn't just about wine. Every kind of illegal drug you can think of. Every kind of legal drug you can think of. And then you can also expand it to all the emotional and relational and personal and circumstantial aspects of your life that tend to control our hearts. Right? The materialism of our culture. The advertisements of our age, the, 
a love of money, or what we get to later, people-pleasing and eye service and wanting people to think highly of us, the way that we can be controlled by our own self-righteousness and our pride and our ego, the way we can be controlled by the desire to validate ourselves and prove ourselves right, the way we can be controlled by other people's opinions and what they think of us, the way that we can be controlled by envy and covetousness and jealousy, and you've got that, so I want that, and what you have is controlling me now, and you just, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on, and anything that would control us instead of the Spirit, these verses speak to that. It's like, no, God's will for you is to be controlled by His Spirit, and not that, whatever that is. And so asking what this teaches us about God gives us the full force of these verses. Do you see that? That it's centered on this positive desire of God for the Spirit to control you. And not just a really narrow, singular command of avoid this thing, whatever that thing is. In this case, avoid wine or avoid alcohol. Like you could avoid wine, avoid all alcohol, and completely miss these two verses. And so if we come thinking this is a question just about this topic, and this is my point right now, just about this topic, whatever this topic is, including wine, and we get an answer about that, but it doesn't teach us something about God, we're missing what God's really saying in these verses. Do you see that? Like it has to be grounded in who he is, in this bigger issue of this is who God is, this is what God wants for his people. And who God is, it does speak to that one little narrow thing that we could focus on. Like that's included in the breadth of everything that, that God's saying here. But it's not limited to that. And if we limit it to that, we're missing this big picture of who God is and the relationship he wants to have with you and how he wants to impact your entire life. So I hope this is a really good illustration of why we approach the Bible this way every single week. So, God's will for you is the controlling influence of your life will be his spirit. And then, when you're filled with his spirit, Paul gives us this list of all these things that are going to flow out of you. And I think it's really important to think about it that way. That this is not a checklist of behaviors where you say, okay, I'm going to get up, and every day these, how many things did I list last week? Seven. Every day, these seven things, I need to do this sometime today. So, you know, 8.30, I encourage somebody. 8.45, I tell somebody some truth about who God is. 9 o'clock, I turned on a worship song. We had that covered. 10.30, I thanked God because it quit raining. You know, 11.30, I trusted God with whatever that was. 1 o'clock, I, Jesus, I just respect you so much. And then 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I realized I hadn't submitted to anybody all day, so I sent a text to my parents telling them I loved them. Good for the day. Like, that's not the point here. All right? Listen, how many of us that right there, that is our religious life? I don't, that may not be your list, but we got our list, and it's like either I check it all off today, hey, good for me, or I get to the end of the day, and it's like, dang it, I got a 62% today. Like, and some of, the, some of you may be like, that would be a good day for me. But look, the point isn't, hey, I can check off these seven things. I did them sometime. Come back to this word again. Be filled. You know, you know what it would really mean if we were filled with the Spirit? There's so much Spirit in you. And now this is deep right here, but you're full of it. Right? If you're filled with the Spirit, there's Spirit, spirit in you, you're full. So there's not room for anything else. So you don't just check off seven momentary things throughout the day. Your whole day is filled with the Spirit. The, you're, the whole day, you're so full of the Spirit that the Spirit's overflowing out of you, pouring out of you. And so that's why I worded it this way. When you're filled with God's Spirit, these things will flow out of you. This is, this is about who you're becoming because the Spirit makes you a new person. Like you're still you, but you're you with Christ in you. 
You're you amplified and magnified and redeemed and made right, like the way you're supposed to be when God made you originally. This is Jesus bringing those things out of you. And all the things that are in there that have unfortunately come to life because of sin and the fall, like that's the stuff that he's stripping away. That's the stuff that he's pruning. That's the stuff he's crucifying. And it's not coming out of you when you're living by the Spirit. Now, you live by the flesh, and this stuff comes out of you. And you may be able to make it look, you may be able to make it look good, like it's fitting that checklist, but there's all a difference in the world of I'm doing this out of my self-effort versus this is flowing out of me because the Spirit lives in me. The streams of living water that Jesus talks about are flowing out of me in the Spirit. And so this stuff, it's like he lives in me. He's life now. And, and this fruit, just it comes out. Because of him. And so it's not moment by moment here and there. I check that off, check that off, check. I did that. It's that this is who I am when I'm depending on the Spirit. And so we talked about this addressing one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're encouraging each other, but specifically, you hear there, Psalms is the Bible, hymns, and spiritual songs, worship, that all of it's truth about who God is. That we're encouraging one another with these truths about who God is, and at the very same time, we're worshiping God, right? singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And, and I talked last week about how sometimes we take that to mean, like, okay, so I don't do it with my mouth, I just do it in my heart. And that's the opposite of what this is saying here. This is saying doing it with your mouth by itself isn't enough. You could do it with your mouth and it can be in vain. It's, Jesus says that in the Gospels, Isaiah says that, God says it through Isaiah in the Old Testament, that you, your worship can be in vain because it's just your mouth and not your heart. And Paul's saying, no, the Spirit is working in your heart, so there's a genuine heart worship that flows out of your mouth. That what you really believe about God and, and love about God and how you worship in your heart matches what you say. It's both. And obviously, you've got to be saying it out loud if God's going to use those truths to encourage other people. So worship to God, thanks to God, and then we talked about how hard to thank God always for everything is unless you really have faith in God. That's where that one came from. That I'm trusting that when these hardest and darkest and worst things come in life, that I can still believe that God is good and his love endures forever. That these things don't define him, that he ultimately defines what will come of these things. That they are hard and they are bad and there's all sorts of that in this world and in our lives, but that God is still in control and God is still good and he still loves us and so we trust him when we don't see it yet. And so that's why we said faith in God will be flowing out of us in these moments. It's the only way you can give thanks this way. Because like, it's pointless to fake it and you have this terrible thing that happens you're just like, well, thank God for that. You can't thank God for that. Not, not honestly. But if you believe that God's working all things together for good, that the work of Jesus is ultimately going to redeem all things and that he sees things and knows things that you don't see and know yet and that he is pulling everything together in such a way that when it's all said and done and you look back, you'll see how he's redeemed it and worked it for good, then you can sit there and say, I don't see it yet. I can't see it yet and this is awful and it hurts and I can't hardly bear it, but I believe you, I trust you and I'll thank you for that. Respect and reverence for Jesus, you see, out of reverence for Christ down here, just this high view of Jesus, really believing that this is about him and that our relationship with him should define everything about us and everything about our relationships with one another. And then submitting to one another. I pointed this out just because of how much we often misinterpret the next section between wives and husbands. And I just pointed out that there's something going on in our hearts when the Spirit of Christ lives in us that the same submission and humility we see from Jesus when he was on earth, 
even though he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he's the rightful God who deserves all of our worship, the way that he laid himself down and gave himself up for everyone, the, just the humble, quiet acceptance of punishment that he didn't deserve, the willingness to die for people who didn't deserve it, that that type of submission and humility is going to start to grow in us toward everybody. And it doesn't matter what your position is. If he is the king of kings and he can be that humble and submit in that way, it does not matter which of these leadership positions you're in. There's a certain level of humility and submission that should flow out of us toward everyone. And it's not defined by position. It's defined by the spirit of Christ lives in us. And this is who Christ is. This is what he looks like. That's what we should look like. And, and he is the ultimate leader. So even if you're a leader in every one of these categories we go through in a little while, this type of submission, this type of humility, this type of laying yourself down for others, giving yourself up for the good of others, should characterize all of your leadership positions and all of your submission positions. It doesn't matter which group you're in. If Christ lives in you, there's, a, there's an overarching tone or tenor to your heart as you live out those positions. So that's where we started last week. It's as far as we made it. Now, this week, the first thing I want to point out is that we, you know, we've got these three groupings, like wives and husbands, children and parents, and then what's called here masters and bond servants, and, and we would take it today as probably employees and employers, or you know, bosses and, and employees. And, and I know that anytime you get into the bond servant and, and slave conversation with the Bible, like it's, it's a hard thing for us. There's a big cultural disconnect, and we've got an extremely negative history in our country with slavery. And it's, it's fair, first of all, to read this and say, hey, this may be a, like a, a bad thing here too. <laughs> like Paul doesn't say, hey, it's good. He, but he, what he says is, even if you're in the middle of a bad thing, here's how you live faithfully to Jesus. You know, like I would point that out first, but also I would say that probably the master bondservant type of slavery is different than what we think of when we think of the horrible expressions in our country, you know, 150 years ago, in this sense, that today we've got built in, especially today, um, some systems in place for when people enter into poverty and can't get out of it. You can file for bankruptcy when you can't pay your debts. Again, it's, a, it's a legal thing that's in place to cover your debt. Um, we, we also have welfare, unemployment, like ways to provide for people when they aren't able to provide for themselves. That didn't exist at this time, and this bond servant thing was actually when somebody got into debt, they couldn't pay off, or they, they could say, I'm going to sell myself as a worker. Like, this is not, hey, we're going to come capture you, we own you, we're going to sell you, and you have no hope of ever being free. And that, that's, it's not this. Now, this may not be great still, but just know that it's not that. And I just like, before we keep running past it, I need to address it for a minute. It's me saying, hey, I owe you more than I can ever pay, so I'm going to sell my labor to you, and I'm going to work to pay off my debt. And if eventually I do, I can buy back my own freedom. That was one of the options. Or I can also say, hey, you're such a great master and employer that I want to keep working for you, so I'll be your bondservant for the rest of my life. And I still get paid for the work I do. That was more the system in place. It's like it's probably not the slavery we think of. It's probably also not the free labor market that we think of today. It's somewhere in between. And so I'm not trying to say, oh, it's this shade of gray. I'm just saying it's a little bit different, but I think there are parallels enough between the employer 
who has a role of authority over his workers, and then the employees who submit to his authority, that we can draw that out and apply it to ourselves in that way. So, with these groups uh, of wife, husband, children, parent, employer, employee, I wanted you to notice this about the submissive ones first. In verse 22, submit to your own husbands, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In verse 6-1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. In 6.5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. There's three groups that Paul addresses in this section who are supposed to submit in some way in their relationship. And every single time, he connects their submission to Jesus and not just to this human relationship. Do you see that? And so I'm going to offer this truth for us today. Submission, and I know it's a nasty word in our culture, and just so you know, it's not just our culture, it's a nasty word to all of our hearts as human beings. It doesn't matter when you live or who you are. We don't like it. Submission is always about your relationship with Jesus, period. He's saying any of these relationships you're in, ultimately the way you submit will be defined not by your relationship to that person, but by your relationship to Jesus. How do you submit to him? That's how it'll play out in your other relationships. And we have this conversation with our girls a lot because there's times that obviously they disobey us, they dishonor us, disrespect us, you know, all the things that would be said to children here. And, and we say to them, you know, at the end of the day, our biggest concern is if you don't learn to obey us, you won't obey God. Because, because we're not the authority in your life. God is the authority in your life. And God, as the authority in your life, has put us as a placeholder to live out some of that authority in your life. And so when you're rebelling against our authority, you're already rebelling against his authority, but you're also showing that the thing that's in your heart is rebellion against authority. <laughs> there's, there's a pattern here. And so submission's always about your relationship with Jesus. And then I put a period there, and now I'm going to change that to a comma because I wanted that sentence to sit there. But just for the sake of talking about one way that these sections are mis- misinterpreted, submission is not about your comparative value to the person in authority. Like Paul doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands because, and then fill in the blank, they're better than you, more valuable than you, smarter than you. What, like, that's not why. Submit to your husbands because of your relationship with Jesus. As to the Lord. And it's not children. Obey your parents because they're better than you, smarter than you. What, like, it's not more valuable than you. It's in the Lord because of your relationship with Jesus. Even bond servants, it's not obey your masters because they own you and they deserve this and they bought this and it's their right. No, as you would Christ. And one of the things he's actually doing here is he takes, in that culture, wives, children, bond servants, they didn't have value to the culture. Like when you're talking economically and practically, they had no legal standing. 
and they had, had no way to obtain value and, and to, to build equity apart from these relationships. And notice, and this is, I think this is really worth pointing out, Paul addresses every one of them first. And, and I don't think that's an accident. It's like he's saying... I want you to know, even though the culture sees it this way, like the person in authority is more important, the gospel does not see it that way. That you are equal. And one of the ways I'm going to do that is I'm going to talk to you first. The people that the world would consider less valuable, the people that the world would discard, I'm coming to you first as a person talking directly to you and saying, hey, you've got a role in this relationship that's about you and Jesus. You have a significant relationship with Jesus. And for you to express that gives you great spiritual worth. And so he addresses wives first and children first and bond servants first. And if you really, really want to see for sure that he is saying, hey, all of you are equal in value and worth, this bond servant and master section makes it really clear. He says all this stuff to the bond servants. And, and you know, the whole time he's saying, hey, do it with a sincere heart. And you know that's always a God issue. Uh, your heart issue is always a God issue, as you would Christ, not just so that people will look at you and think you're doing the right thing, but because you're really serving Jesus. And from the heart, you're doing the will of God, not just, not just the will of your master. This is about you obeying God, and you're rendering your service as if it's to the Lord, not to man. All that long stuff to bond servants, and he turns around to the masters, and look at this. Masters, do the same thing to them. Do you know how revolutionary that is? Like, I've talked to all of your bond servants, now I'm going to turn to you and be like, you're exactly the same as them. <laughs> Everything I've said to them applies to you. You are not in a different category. You're not above them. You're not more valuable than them. You're not in this place where you're over them and they've got to do this stuff for you and you don't have to do it for them. No, you're exactly, do the same thing to them. Why? Because you're a servant too. Because your relationship with Jesus defines you, not your relationship to other people. And so he's like, Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're an earthly master. It doesn't matter if you're an earthly boss. It doesn't matter if you're an earthly employer. Jesus is your master. Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is your king. You also, even in this position of authority, you submit to him. And so you have way more in common with these other people who submit to him than you do differently because of your human positions and relationship. Do you see that there? So submission's always about your relationship with Jesus, not about your comparative value to the person in authority. And you're not going to hear that in the world. Like the world's going to look at human relationships and say, which one has more power? Which one has more authority? Which one has more clout? Which one has more valuable? I want those. Go get those. Find a way to manipulate your way into those positions. Get as much power and clout and authority as you can for yourself. And the Bible's saying, forget human categories. Forget human authority and human power and look to Jesus and let your heart trust him and submit to him and out of your relationship with him, live out submission to others and then also out of your relationship with him, you might get to the place where your heart won't be so polluted by power and authority that maybe you can lovingly lead and live out that power in a way that's good for others and not just good for yourself. But until you learn to submit to Jesus in this way, you will never be ready to be in any leadership position. Because all of us, our primary place is a place of submission to God. That is our starting place. It's why up here, you know, when he's talking about being filled with the Spirit, he tells us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But notice he doesn't do the counter. He doesn't do all of you lead one another out of reverence for Christ. That was not ne is not necessary. 
for you to be in a position of power and authority for you to respect Christ. It is necessary for you to learn a place of submission for you to respect Christ. And we talked about it last week because this really is who he is. He really is king of kings and lord of lords. He really does rule over all of creation. And the only way you can see him rightly is if you are looking up to him, knowing that you're below him. Until you get to that place of submission to him, you're wrong about everything. Like If you see him the wrong way, and you see your relationship with him the wrong way, you're going to see all your other relationships the wrong way. So, that first note there, submission is always about your relationship with Jesus. This one probably won't surprise you. Next one. Leadership is, what do you think? Always about... Your relationship with Jesus. So we looked at the three submissive roles in this section. Look at the three leadership roles with me now. 525. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave, him up, gave himself up for her. Look at 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Like it's not about you making them in your image and, and teaching them whatever it is you want them to know. It's about you pointing them to Jesus and teaching them what he wants them to know. And then masters, do the same to your bond servants. Stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Like if you want to just take everything I said a few minutes ago and summarize it in one phrase, there's no, he said, he doesn't favor leaders over submitters. You're equal to him. Completely equal. You are no more valuable to him as a master than you are as a bondservant. You're no more valuable to him as a parent than you are as a child. You're no more valuable to him as a husband than you are as a wife. There's no partiality. None of that distinguishes you before him. You are equally sinful and desperate for his help before him. And you are equally loved and forgiven in Christ because of him. Like that is your standing before him. Nothing that you have done, nothing you can do, no position that you hold, no power that you have. None of that makes you more valuable to him. None of that makes him love you more. He loves you because of who he is. He loves you because that is his heart towards you. He loves you because that's his very nature and it flows to you and he offers it to you in Jesus no matter who you are. So the leadership's always about your relationship with Jesus. And then even more, I think if you look at the themes here with each of them, you know, husbands, it's really clear. What does your leadership of your wife look like? What does your love for your wife look like? That you give yourself up for her. Just really simply, it means that when you're in that leadership role, if you're using your leadership in a way that benefits you instead of her, in a way that allows you to get what you want instead of her, in a way that sets you up here as more valuable and more important than her, that's not what the Bible's talking about. That you lead in a way that loves her. You lead in a way that puts her before yourself. You lead in a way that says, your spiritual good matters more to me than mine, and I will give myself up for you. And in the same way here with parents, this one hits hard with me. It's so hard to know how to do this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Like, 
it's so interesting that he turns to people who are clearly in an authority role in this relationship, parents to children, and the first thing he says to them is, be careful how you use your leadership. Be aware of the fact that you can be overbearing and demanding and selfish. Be aware of the fact that in your position of authority and power, you can grind on them and wear on them. and wear, like You won't be doing what's best for them because you won't be leading from a place of love. And in the same way with masters, right? Stop your threatening. Like, don't come and demand obedience because you're like, hey, I'm in power over you, and here's what's going to happen if you don't do what I say. Like in every single one of these leadership roles, Paul knows here's going to be your biggest danger, here's going to be the biggest abuse, here's the thing that you're going to get wrong. You're going to use your power in an overbearing, selfish, demanding way to get what you want instead of to love the people who are underneath your leadership. And he's like, that's not what Jesus does. When the Spirit lives in you, that's not the type of leadership that will flow out of you. Now, it can be strong leadership. Jesus is a strong leader. It can be definitive leadership. Jesus is very definitive about every truth of the gospel that you ever hear him speak. It can be confrontational leadership. Like just read some of his encounters with the Pharisees. Like I'm not saying that it's not that, but it's always like the reason that Jesus does that is because he loves them and he knows what they need and he wants what's best for them. And it's never to prop himself up, to exalt himself, to get for himself. It's always to give for the sake of others. And so then one of the huge differences here, of course, between us and Jesus when you're in any of these leadership roles is he knew what they needed. I feel like I almost never know what the people under my leadership need. Like whether that's in my home or at work or even here with you all. Like in, in a teaching role, in an elder role, I just feel like, to like really know what is best for your hearts in any moment is overwhelming and it makes me feel so inadequate. And I believe that God designs that in a way where he's okay, I don't want you to get to a place where you rely on yourself and you're like, hey, I know what you need. But I want you to wake up every day and say, God, I need you. I need your spirit to lead me. I need your spirit to show me. Let, let your spirit show me how to lovingly lead in a way that really is best for other people's hearts and not just what I think or what I want or what would be best for me. Like this requires continual dependence on Jesus a continual looking to Jesus. And every moment that I'm not and I just rely on me, they get something that is me and my flesh instead of Jesus. And it won't be best for them. So leadership is always about your relationship with Jesus. And you can copy the same thing here, that it's not about your comparative value to the person in submission. You are not more valuable because you're leading. You're not. You're... Your leadership role or your submission role is not a statement about your value and their value, whichever role you're in. It just isn't. Your leadership role is a statement about who Jesus is and how much you need him to live in you if you are ever going to lead like this. And your submission role is a statement about who Jesus is and how much you need him to live in you if you are going to have any hope of submitting like this. Like the only way that you will lead and love the way that Jesus leads and loves his church is if Jesus lives in you. And the only way that you will submit the way that Jesus completely submits to his Father to the point of death is if Jesus lives in you. So that's the other way that this levels the... This does not 
elevate certain people and lower certain people. This levels the playing field because what this does is Jesus can look at every single one of us and whatever role you're in and whatever combination roles, because most of us are probably going to be in some leadership roles and some submission roles at the same time in our life. And Jesus can look at every single one of us in every one of those roles and he can say, if you want to walk away with one thing, you need me. Jesus can look at you and say, you can't do this without me. All of you need me. And we're all in the same place. And what it should do is it should stir up a certain level of grace and compassion in us between one another that would actually help us live out all that other relational stuff that we already read earlier in the chapter where it's like, hey, I know how hard it is. Like, I know how much my heart gets in the way when I've got to lead, and I know how much my heart gets in the way when I've got to submit, and whatever your role is, I can identify with you. And I know how hard it is, and I know how much we need Jesus, and I I want to go to Jesus with you in all of that. So, leadership's always about your relationship with Jesus, not about your comparative value to the person in authority. And then just as the added bonus application here, what I've already said, don't lead. in a selfish, overbearing, demanding way. Because that's not who Jesus is. Lead with love, gentleness, and for their good, whoever it is that's underneath your leadership. The other big theme I wanted to point out right here, so we looked at submission group together, we looked at leadership group together, look at all of them grouped together right here. All six of these, all six of these roles are about the attitude of your heart toward the other person. One of the things that I feel like we do a lot of times is we get in this section right all right, tell me specifically what this looks like. like what, what should the husband do in the marriage, around the home? What should the wife do? Like what, and we just want these, again, give me the checklist. Of, if I did these seven things today, I loved her the right way. If she did these seven things today, she submitted to me the right way. It goes way deeper than that. Like, is there an attitude of love? Is there an attitude of submission? The same way with parents and children. You know, one of the big questions we'll ask in that section is, okay, well, how long do I have to obey my parents? <laughs> Give me a number. First of all, I will comment on that really quickly. It's interesting to me that we get two different words here. Children, obey, and then honor. Here is what I think is going on there. When you are still a child to your parent, you're under their authority, and you're supposed to obey them. They tell you what to do, you do it. When you become a grown child, (laughs) a grown person, your heart should still honor your parents, but you're not under their authority anymore in the sense of them telling you what to do. Does that make sense? Like, you never outgrow honoring them, but you do outgrow obeying them. You're not a child anymore, you're an adult. And I think that one of the easiest ways to say that in our culture, and so... Students, kids, like if you want to, just a specific here, if you are still financially dependent on your parents, 
you're still under their authority is the way that I would say it. Like if they are providing for you financially, you're under their authority to obey them. When you become financially independent, you're probably not under their authority to obey them anymore, but you still are in a place where your heart should honor them. And then always with all these, whether it's wives, husbands, children, parents, even employees, employers, we do have the one caveat, but we're so, we, we want to run to this thing so fast so it can get us out of submission and obedience that I almost hesitate to say it, but I'm going to say it. In, in Acts, when we're supposed to submit to governing authorities, and Peter and John give us the statement, we must obey God and not men, that the government leaders are telling them to do something that would be disobedience to God, and like, we're not obeying you in that case. That always applies. If your submission in any of these roles would mean disobedience to God, your relationship with God comes first. Again, that's why it's important to see that your relationship with God defines all of these. And so, so wives, if, if your husband's leadership would take you to a place of disobeying God, you don't follow him there. Children, if obeying your parents would take you to a place of disobeying God, you don't follow them there. If whoever you're working for, if, if obeying them and doing what they ask you to do would take you to a place of disobeying God, you don't follow them there. And so I, I do want to acknowledge that, and I know that opens like a thousand scenarios. That's great. Here's why we can't check off all those scenarios, because you need the Spirit to lead you, whatever that scenario is in your life. You need to be dependent on the Spirit of God who lives in you and not some list that me or anybody else can give you. But I do want to acknowledge that God is the trump card. But a lot of us pull out that trump card just because I don't want to obey you. <laughs> That doesn't, it's not the way it works. So this is an attitude of your heart toward the person. And just a couple places to see it. And you can read through the whole thing, and I think you can hear heart pouring out of it over and over and over. But look at... six six is one of the heart references. Not just on the outside here. I, I serve as people pleasers, but doing the will of God from the heart. And then back up here, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. One of the things that stood out to me here again is we can do all this external stuff. Okay, I did all, I did all this stuff for my wife today. Is that good enough? And Paul basically says, do you love her the way you love yourself? And then wives, you know, I, I can imagine a situation where we say, okay, you know, whatever decisions he made, I've gone along with it, I haven't fought him about it, and Paul's like, do you respect him? Like, is that your heart toward him? Because just like an absence of disagreement isn't peace and is not really submission. Like, all you're saying is, hey, I'm just checked out now, do whatever you want. And so with both of these, it's like he's going to our heart of what is your heart like toward your spouse? In the same way with parents and children. Same way with bond servants and masters. And the attitude of the heart that we see here is for all six, putting the other one first. Not using your position for yourself. You know, I mean, wives submit to your husband, put your husband first. Don't use your position for yourself. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Put your wife first and don't use your position for yourself. Children, obey your parents and honor them. Put them first and don't use your position for yourself. Fathers, don't anger your children or don't exasperate them. Put them first and don't use your position for yourself. You're using your position to point them to Jesus. Right? Bond servants. 
serve joyfully. Like not because they can threaten you or force you to do it or, or because you've got yourself in this position, but because you're serving Christ that it flows out of your heart. Put them first. Like actually like willingly, gladly, joyfully serve them. And then masters, treat them like you're equal. I mean, <laughs> don't use your position to demand what you want and use threats to get what you want, but treat them like you're equal and remember that you are equal before Christ and come with them equally to Christ, both as servants of him. Put them before yourself. Don't use your position for yourself. And so, again, it levels the playing field where in one sense he's saying the same thing to all of us. He said it may take different expressions in each of these relationships, but your heart toward Jesus and your heart toward each other should be the same. A couple other quick things. I'm going to focus in on marriage here at the end. And then next week, I hope to focus on parenting is my goal if we make it. (laughs) But I just want to point out and I'm going back to some of what I talked about last week about the ways this gets misunderstood. This right here, wives submit to your own husbands. All right, this is like high-level question. Who's that addressed to? Adam had it, what was it? All right, this is addressed to wives. Husbands, love your wives. Who's that addressed to? Husbands. This is one of the only times you'll ever hear me say this. If you are a wife today, there's a verse in the Bible that does not apply to you. Verse 25 right here. Paul's not talking to you. If you are a husband today, there's a verse in the Bible that doesn't apply to you. Wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 20 does not apply to you. And what I want to point out is this doesn't say husbands make your wife submit. It's not your job and it's not your business. This is between her and Jesus. And wives, it doesn't say, demand that your husband love you the way you want before you submit to him. That's not your job and it's not your business. That's between him and Jesus. Like Jesus is saying something to you, wives, and he's talking to you about your heart toward him. And then Jesus is saying something to you, husbands, and he's talking to you about your heart toward him. And one of the things this does is that the whole thing about compromise and 50-50 and all that stuff, chuck that right on out the window. Because if your relationship with God defines your relationships in your life and you look to him, you're like, how has he modeled this for us? He didn't compromise with you. He didn't meet you in the middle. He didn't do 50-50 with you because you weren't coming to him at all. You weren't giving him anything except rebellion, being his enemy, running away from him. And he said, I'll come all the way to you. And so here's the deal. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's about your relationship with Jesus. And you do that whether he does what he's supposed to or not. Husbands, love your wives. That's about your relationship with Jesus. And you do that whether she does what she's supposed to or not. And if that's not the hardest word you've ever heard in church... (laughs) then you're not listening, (laughs) all right? (laughs) Like this is when you know whether it really gets to the core of your heart. Because have you ever tried to do the right thing for anybody, let alone somebody that you share your whole life with, when they're not doing the right thing in return? Like if you want to know whether human fleshly selfishness and sense of justice still lives inside of you, just try to do this when they're not doing what they're supposed to. 
Like, try to not feel justified in the way you treat them when they've done the wrong thing. Like, this is God exposing, saying, hey, you're not like me on your own. The type of free love and grace that lives inside of him and flows to us when we don't deserve it and can't, it doesn't naturally live in us. And we desperately need Him to live in us, to produce this in us. And so again, this is about your relationship with Jesus on a deeper level than it's about anything else. And I know I said, I want to be careful that we don't get into all these specifics and try to make it about that. But I do want to say, just to wives and husbands here, when we really see that it's about our heart, and it's about our relationship with Jesus. Whatever specifics you find, I want you to know, like, wives, if, if we were to say, okay, I know I'm supposed to submit to him, so whatever he says, like, we'll just do that, and he'll make the decisions. I want you to know, you know, it also says respect him down here. We talked about that. You can submit disrespectfully. And you all know that, don't you? You all are masters of tone. You're masters of body language. You're masters of silence. I mean, really, you know that you can submit disrespectfully, right? You can also, and this is really important to say because of the way this, you can disagree respectfully. This does not mean you have to think the same things your husband thinks. It doesn't mean that you have to have all the same opinions. It doesn't mean there's not a place for you to speak up. But you can do that respectfully. Verse disrespect, and it's about our hearts. And then husbands, lead doesn't mean that you do everything and it doesn't mean that you make all the decisions unilaterally. Like, you can lead in a way that doesn't look anything like Jesus. Lead, I really think leading like this is going to mean that you listen to your wife and you listen to your kids. Like, families aren't a democracy, biblically. We see that. Not everybody has a vote. But I think that a loving, gentle leader is going to give everybody a voice. Like, if you're leading well, my suggestion would be you're going to say, when I lead, here's what I choose to consider in my decision-making, what you all think. Because <laughs> you all see things I don't see. You know things I don't know. You've got opinions I need to hear. And maybe at the end of the day we talk through this thing. I do this, with, especially with the girls, with our kids. Lots of like, Yeah, let me hear what you think, and let me think about it. And maybe it's going to shape what we end up doing. Like, I want you to feel like you have a voice in our relationship. And at the same time, I may hear everything you think, and I may really think, that's a bad idea. <laughs> They're nine and seven, <laughs> and it's a bad idea. <laughs> and we may do something different. Like, it's not just because the two of them vote, they, they win, right? But I do believe that this not exasperating them, loving the way that Jesus loves, all those things, is I want to hear you. I want all of this to happen in the context of a relationship. And so you can lead in a way that's not loving at all. And you, listen, we can cloak it. We're so good. We're all like Judas. Do you remember when, when the, the sinful woman anoints Jesus with the really expensive perfume and Judas makes it sound so good? We could have sold that and given money to the poor. Like, oh, we can make everything sound good, can't we? And, of course, John tells us he didn't care anything about the poor. He used to steal from the money bag all the time. Like that's what was really in his heart. And so, you know, we can, husbands, I'm doing this for your good. I'm taking this stand because I know it's what's best for us. And there's no love in it at all for your wife or your children. Like we can make it sound right. And wives the same way. Like 
I just, I, I really believe that you're heading in the wrong direction. Like, you really need to hear this. And it's just really, I don't want to go where you're going. <laughs> like, we can make it sound good. And that's why it's so challenging to bring it back to our hearts and say, am I coming from a place where I love like Jesus? Am I coming from a place where I submit like Jesus? Am I living out not the words of this text, but the actual heart behind this text? And I'm going to tell you, if we're being honest, and you aren't depending on the Spirit, and the Spirit isn't producing this in you, the answer for all of us will be no. No. I don't love like Jesus unless Jesus lives his love out of me. And I don't submit like Jesus unless Jesus lives his submission out of me. All right. We need to bring the kids in. We need to do the Lord's Supper. If you've got thoughts, we'll, just, we'll pick up right here next week. And I want to hear any truths you want to share, and then we'll jump into the parenting section. I think it's a good place to break it anyway. So if you all want to go ahead and bring the kids in, you want to be looking for your kids. As we head into the Lord's Supper, and it's fine if you pack your stuff up, but I am going to keep talking about the Bible right here. These truths about Jesus that we haven't specifically written, I want to specifically write them right now. And I want you to see that's the foundation of this passage. It's the foundation of our relationships. And it's the foundation of why we're getting ready to do what we're about to do when we remember the body and the blood of Jesus. And so just look at this. Jesus loves the church. Verse 25. Jesus gave himself up for the church. Jesus is sanctifying Making holy, that's what that means, his church. Jesus has cleansed his church. I love this next one. Jesus is presenting His church to himself. Like, I love the fact that he wants you for himself. And he looks at you and he's like, you could never ever be a gift worthy for me except I'm going to make you a gift worthy for me. I'm going to make you so perfect and spotless and clean and valuable that you deserve to be a gift for the king and the king wants you. Jesus loves you, loves the church as his own body. Jesus nourishes and cherishes you. And in this thing right here, Again, I hope we get to this. I know we've spent three weeks here, and, and I hope it's okay if we spend a couple more, but this is a quote from Genesis 2, when God brings Adam and Eve together, the first marriage we get. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, hey, in that moment, that was still a truth about God and not just about marriage. And he's like, and here's the truth it is, that that is about Christ and the church. Jesus left his father 
and made himself one with you. When you were dirty and stained and unworthy. When you should have been rejected and cast away and driven away and ignored forever. Jesus left his father and he came and he took hold of you. And he made you one with him. And he holds fast to you in love. He holds fast to you as his bride. He holds fast to you as his church. He holds fast to you in a relationship that he initiated, in a relationship that can never be broken because it's his. It's his decision. And in that moment, he said, I've got perfect relationship with my father, perfect love with my father, but I will leave that to come to imperfect people like you. And I will call you my own, and I will make you my own. This is the love of Jesus for you. This is the defining love and defining relationship in your entire life and in all reality. And I pray that you see him just a little bit more today. And so as we take these elements, his body broken for you because he wanted to be one with you. His blood shed for you because he wanted to cleanse you and make a way for you to be in that relationship with him. And so that's what we're remembering right now. That's what we're celebrating right now. That's what we're going to sing about in just a minute. So, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. cup is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me let's pray together and then let's sing and worship together Father thank you for this time right now Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have pursued us and chased us down. That you have chosen and longed to have a relationship with us. Help us, Father, to know and believe your love more deeply today than we ever have and to be transformed by it as your spirit lives in us. That the fruit of your love would grow out of us. And that it would define our marriages, it would define our relationship with our parents and our children, it would define the way that we run our businesses, it would define the way that we work for people, it would define all of our relationships in this church, it would define all the relationships in our lives. Father, I ask that you would do that big of a work in our hearts by your love. We need you to do it. Father, we will never, ever look like this apart from you. I pray that today we would see 
how desperately we need Jesus, that we would see the reality of our hearts and who we are apart from Jesus, and that in humility we would be driven to the hope that you give us in him and in his gospel. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your love and grace. We thank you and we praise you right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand and sing with us, we're going to have pastors, elders, staff, wives down here. If you would like to pray or talk with somebody, or if you just want to come and pray on the steps, you're welcome to do that. But let's worship together.